0: growth of the church. But as we now get into the actual persecutions that resulted as the church be refused to die, let's put it that way. Because initially, the first 50 to 100 years, there were very few Christians. Matter of fact, there were parts of the Roman Empire where people probably had never met a Christian. Now, they might have met one, but he wouldn't have admitted that he was a Christian, perhaps. Um, and We also talked about the fact that Christianity did not spread evenly throughout the world, the Roman world. It had its initial growth in the Eastern Mediterranean, uh, principally in areas that we would today identify as being Egypt, Turkey, uh, places like that. As a matter of fact, uh, kind of interestingly It did not grow rapidly in the Holy Land. It remained very much a minority issue in the Holy Land. We touched on the fact and ended last week by talking about the Jewish persecutions which are found in the book of Acts. Now, some of those we're all familiar with. Uh, including, of course, uh, the stoning of Stephen. And uh, that occurred in what is estimated to be 34 AD. Uh, I'm using the assumption that uh, Christ was crucified and uh, resurrected in 33 AD. There is some dispute about that. Some very reputable sources will have deduct three years from that and say that Christ actually died in 30 AD. Be that as it may, it's close enough for our purposes. Um, So we all know uh, about, as I said, the uh, stoning of Stephen, Um, but there were other acts which occurred shortly thereafter which we don't have in the book of Acts, but which can be, Called from the writings of Josephus and his history of the Jews. Uh, For example, we know that uh, James the Lesser, who is not James the brother of John, but the other James in the apostles, uh, was uh, executed in 62 AD by the high priest Ananias. Now remember that the high priesthood at this time for the Jews is very much a political position and they serve at the sufferance of the Romans. Uh, These two executions, which were absolutely illegal under Roman law, got back to the emperor Uh, Tiberius and he was not pleased and he sent his right-hand man, a fellow by the name of Vitellius, who went in there and cleaned house. He threw Ananias out of the priesthood. Um, He uh, dismissed Pilate in 37 AD because he didn't like what had happened there. And kind of amazingly, Tiberius Actually went to the Senate, and uh, in thirty-five A.D. and went to get permission to build in Rome a temple to Jesus. Something most people obviously don't know about. The Senate, however, which represented the upper classes and the religious establishment within the empire said absolutely not. As a matter of fact, they turned around and if you look at your, uh, uh, I'm working off of the master from which that was created. They declared not only would they not put up with the idea of having a temple to Jesus in Rome But they issued a famous proclamation which would come back to haunt the Christians for the next two to 300 years. And the Latin for it is non-licit esse vos. And it is translated, it is not lawful for you to exist. Now that's pretty sweeping. It didn't say that (laughs) it's not lawful for you to practice your religion because the Romans were very, very tolerant of religions. They saw this as such a threat that they said, you don't have the right to draw breath. So this will disappear into history for a little while, then it will be hauled out at various times by subsequent rulers as sort of an historical precedent for the attitude of at least a portion of the Roman power structure, and again, I emphasize, Rome was huge. And despite the fact that their communication system was the envy of the world, it could still take years for things to filter out from Rome. And there was a tremendous amount of independent authority assigned to the governors of various sections because they obviously had their complete loyalty to the emperor. And so the emperor, like any good uh, chief executive, would basically get word out, here's what I'm, I'm trying to accomplish, and uh, um, I leave it up to you. Uh, but you'd better succeed. <laughs> okay. So uh, what about the Romans then? Well, uh, having stabilized uh, the situation, at least temporarily, in the Holy Land, Let's turn our attention to Rome and let's take a look at Tiberius's, um, one of the successors of Tiberius, which is Claudius. Now, some of you may remember the BBC uh, did a fabulous multi-year dramatization of, of the books I, Claudius, and Claudius the God. And it gives a reasonable picture of Claudius, but of course it's, it's, it's historical fiction. Claudius uh, was a very mild-mannered man. He was known as a builder and uh, he was uh, disabled and many people thought he was a complete idiot, but he had, he accomplished quite a bit. It, but in 49 A.D. there were a series of riots in Rome called the crestus. Now, there are two spellings for this. One is C-H-R-E-S-T-U-S. One of them is C-H-R-I-S-T-U-S. Two different spellings. And uh, Rome at this time had the largest Jewish population in the empire. There were more Jews living in Rome than there were living in the Holy Land. Up until this time, it was assumed that Christians were just another variation on Judaism, like the Sadducees, like the Pharisees, uh, like the Essenes, and a number of other little groups. And so this was assumed to be an internal conflict within the Jewish community, a sectarian problem. But it was very, very violent, very disruptive. And uh, Claudius finally, after trying to get this thing tamped down, Claudius expelled all the Jews from Rome. Interestingly enough, he didn't expel the Christians. Now this is curious because Judaism was called a licit, L-I-C-I-T, religion. And Jews were granted certain privileges that no other religious group was granted. Number one, they didn't have to worship the emperor or the Roman gods. And number two, they were not subject to military service. Now you could say to yourself, well, why in the world did they get these kinds of privileges? Well, they got these kinds of privileges because they were so difficult to manage. (laughs) And... (laughs) And so the Roman emperors uh, eventually said, okay, look, we've got a gold mine over here. Not so much literally a gold mine, but we have frankincense, much more valuable than gold. And the area around Jer- uh, Jericho is a big producer of frankincense. And we've got wonderful other produce and figs and dates, which are worth their weight in gold. So." the Holy Land was an imperial province, meaning that all the revenue from it went directly into the pocket of the emperor, as opposed to a province which was controlled by the Senate. So the emperors would pick the low-hanging fruit from the empire and all of it would go into their pocketbook. So they decided in the long run, we'll just let them off the hook for all of this and we'll try to keep peace here. Uh, So anyway, so, Claudius throws them out, lets the Christians stay, uh, and uh, about, mm, I think it's about six or seven years later, he allows the Jews to come back in. Why? Well, because the Jews are an underground banking system. A role that they would assume in the Middle Ages or reassume in the Middle Ages. And it's an ironic parallel that seven or eight hundred years later we find the Jews on the margins but integral to commerce. And so he brought them back in. Let's fast forward to everybody's favorite emperor, and that's Nero. So if you pa- turn to page six, Uh, Nero is a fascinating guy. He uh, was not always completely a madman. As a matter of fact, when Nero ascended the throne, people thought he was sensational. He was amazingly popular with, with everyone. And he was very talented. He was a polymath, or he thought he was a polymath, meaning he thought he was not only a terrific emperor, but he thought he was a wonderful actor, a wonderful poet, a wonderful musician, a wonderful everything. Well, this all began to go to his head. And so uh, he began to become, in a way he was ahead of his time. In what way do I mean? We talked last week and the week before about the mystery religions, which were beginning to come in from the east as as the American empire, as the Roman empire expanded further east. It couldn't expand really any further west. It already had North Africa, it already had Uh, modern-day Portugal and Spain and so on. So it either had to go north, and the Germans were tough customers, you didn't wanna go north, or you had to go east. Now, if you went east, now you ran up against another tough customer, Uh, and that would be the Persians, uh, today's Iranians. The Persians who have one of the three longest continuous civilizations in history, along with China and India. So, as they went east, all these exotic religions began to come back into Roman society. And what also came along with them was the tradition of the absolute God ruler of the empire. Remember, the roots of the Roman Empire are a republic. That's one of the reasons our founding fathers looked to them for guidance as to how to set up a state. Completely different background from the East. Well, uh, some of this began to rub off on Nero. So he began to do increasingly bizarre, increasingly arbitrary things. And then uh, he came up with a plan. He was going to build, uh, what was uh, Michael Jackson's? place called Neverland, Neverland. he got the idea from Nero. (laughs) Nero decided that he was going to build a gigantic palace, the biggest palace in the world, the known world. But it would not only be a palace, it would have a lake, it would have its own private uh, hippodrome for uh, races, it would have its own private Uh, Gladiatorial area, and it was. He started building it. He he wanted to start building it, but the problem was he didn't have the land. Well, wouldn't you know? In 64 AD, the great fire of Rome breaks out. Now, Rome was divided at that time into 14 districts, uh, very much like Paris is divided. 11 out of the 14 districts were basically wiped out or substantially wiped out. Only three were untouched. And guess where the wiped out districts included? Well, the site plot for this new production. So now Nero had um, cleared the land. At least that's what people thought. Nobody knows. Uh, And uh, there were rumblings of mutiny because the town, the city had just been devastated. Tens and tens, hundreds of thousands of people lost their homes, their jobs, everything else. Well, he needed a scapegoat. And he decided that the Christians were the perfect scapegoat. Why? Because Christians at that time were very self-contained. they tended to separate themselves just like the Jews, from the larger culture around them. This led rise to some very peculiar rumors regarding what they were, what they believed and what they did, including uh, oh child sacrifice, incest, um, we'll get into the racier parts a little later. But basically, they were often referred to as haters of mankind, because they wanted nothing to do with you. Does that sound like a Pharisee? Yeah, sounds very much like a Pharisee. Uh, And they were also thought to be totally depraved. Now, coming from first century Rome, that's saying something, okay? So here you have hundreds, possibly thousands of people are arrested Convicted and executed in a number of creative ways. What were they convicted of? They were not convicted of a religious crime. They were convicted of arson. There was no religious test. They were convicted of arson. Now, the net result was the same. But it, it's important to see that at this point, there isn't enough presence of Christianity and/or enough awareness of it to consider it as a religion to be a threat. It's the behavior which was a threat, not ideologically. These are people that shun us; they look down their nose at us. Da, 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 da. Any of this sound familiar? How many people feel that Christianity is the religion of no? Anyway, so they were hated for their moral austerity. Uh, Incest, cannibalism, child sacrifice. Ironically, that will come back to haunt the Jews in the Middle Ages, where they'll be accused of child sacrifice. Also, they were suspect because they failed to worship or sacrifice to the gods. Remember, it's a civil religion. So who was it that were making these accusations? Was it the Romans and the pantheism, or was it the Jews making the accusations? Well, the Han- um, it, at this point in time, it, it this is the rumor on the street. This is the buzz on the street. And remember, if something like this happens, the devastation of Rome, people immediately think, well, we're being punished. I mean, after all, Roman pagan religion is largely a religion of propitiation. Keep the gods from being upset, as much as it is, or even more than it is, for asking for favors or help. Basically, let the big boys sleep, do what you need to do. But to do that, you have to practice a civil religion, not a private religion. You can do that. You can do that. If you want, you've got your household gods, that's fine. But you have to practice a civil religion so that the gods can look down and see that they are being appropriately respected by all classes of Roman society. So we don't know exactly how many people Roman uh, Nero persecuted and killed. Uh, Some people say hundreds, some sources say thousands. Uh, One of the favorite methods, and um, this has been portrayed uh, graphically in some movies, uh, they would tie them up, uh, coat them in pitch, uh, tie them to a pole and set them on fire in an attempt to light up Rome. Throwing them to the lions, we'll get to that. That wasn't a common occurrence. It makes for great theater, but it's not all that common. There are much more efficient ways of dealing with people. Well, clearly this doesn't help the popularity of Christianity. But things settle down again. And uh, there are no overt persecutions. Nero is uh, commits suicide or is murdered and/or. and or. Uh, and along comes the next persecutor of Christians, and this is the emperor Domitian. If you remember D's, you can at least recall some of the, the real persecuting emperors. Not all start with D, but Domitian and Diocletian are, are both well-known for that. Um, Domitian is from 81 to 96, and he does something which is on a scale of persecution is small, but the key thing about what Domitian does is it reveals A, the growth of Christianity vertically, In society and also the ruthlessness of the Emperor if he feels that his power base might be compromised by divided loyalties. He executes a consul. Now a consul under the Emperor, the two consuls are the two most important people in government. This one, named Flavius Clemens, was not only a consul, but he was Domitian's cousin. And his aristocratic friends, and they are executed for the crime of atheism. Not treason, not directly treason, atheism. And one of the charges that's brought against uh, Flavius Clemens is the charge of inertia. It's important to realize that, that if you were in the upper echelons of Roman society, an aristocrat, you not only had privileges, but you also had obligations. Lots of them. And you didn't necessarily get paid for these. And this is gonna come back to haunt the Roman Empire in a couple of hundred years. We won't get to that today, but we'll get close. You were expected to be a civic leader. You were expected to help with sacrifices. You were expected to provide relief. You were expected for, for people in, in your, like the Godfather. You were expected to be a manager. You were expected to help society continue to, to grow and function. You were expected to make contributions to build new baths, to, in, to improve the, the, the sewage system, uh, contribute to making an aqueduct, buy the uh, navy a couple of uh, triremes. All of this was expected of you. Well, the problem with the Christians is that they're still withdrawing from society. They're not pulling their weight And to make the point, he doesn't go after the poor people who are Christians. He goes right to the top and starts killing them to send a message. Um, The other thing that annoyed uh, Domitian was that the Christians at this point don't see themselves as members of the Jewish community the way the Roman Empire does. Now, after 70 A.D., when Titus goes in and lays waste Jerusalem and tears down the temple, to help pay for the reconstruction of Jerusalem, all Jews in the empire are taxed for being Jews in order to pay for the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And this tax is called a Fiscus Judaicus, so every Jew has to pay this. Now, by this time, late first century, the Christians will have none of it because they, they're not saying they're Jews. Remember, Claudius thought that the riots in Rome 30 years earlier, 40 years earlier, whatever it is, uh, were due to infighting amongst uh, the Jews. Now, by refusing to pay this tax, the Christians are no longer a licit religion. They're no longer a lawful religion. They've opted out of the bailiwick in which they had been placed by the Romans. Uh, As a matter of fact, what they're considered now is an illegal, illicit, Superstition. Now, you could say to yourself, well, wait a minute. What's the dividing line between a superstition and a pagan religion? They didn't see it that way. They really thought there was a difference. And superstitions were harmful modes of thought which led to harmful behaviors within society. You ever know somebody who was extremely superstitious? Oh, I'm not looking at you. Uh, (laughs) Well, you can see, superstition can lead to paralysis. It can lead to complete, close the door, don't get out of bed, because the gods are against me, the gods hate me. If I don't do everything perfectly, nothing is going to... The Romans are active. They're out. They're conquering the world. Uh, They have no use for these kinds of of odd behaviors that are fueled by rank superstition. So now the Christians go from bad to worse. They go from being Jews, who are none too popular in the Roman Empire anyway, now they go to being an illegal superstition. Okay, following uh, Domitian comes one of the big heavy hitters. And this is very important turning point, at least in history, up to this time. This is an emperor that I'm sure most of you heard of, Trajan. Trajan has the distinction of being the emperor who expands the Roman Empire to its largest physical dimensions. Um, and one of the areas that the Roman Empire has uh, expanded into is northeastern modern-day Turkey, and the, right along the Black Sea. And up there on the southern border of the Black Sea is uh, a, a, an area called Pontus. And the governor who is in charge of that area during Trajan's administration is a very famous Roman by the name of Pliny the Younger. Now, Pliny the Elder was his great grandfather, famous patriot, uh, uh, etc. Uh, the Plinys were ancient royalty in Rome. And so this young man, and he is a young man, is marked for success and he's sent over to this prosperous uh, trading colony. And uh, Pliny gets there and. Um, he is faced with an administrative dilemma. As you can see here, there are on the books a set of existing tests for Christians. One, will they sacrifice to the gods of the empire? Two, Will they make prayers and libations to the image of the emperor? There's a little wiggle room in there. And number three, and here there is no wiggle room, will they denounce Christ? Page seven. Okay. So Pliny is... um, a very reasonable guy. He has no interest per se in Christianity. But he sends a letter to his friend Trajan. And his question is, is their belief, that is the Christian's belief, a crime if it does not lead to a crime? In other words, Pliny is questioning what the Senate said, that it is not legal for you to exist. So Pliny is actually striking a blow for religious freedom. He's saying, "No, oh, wait a minute. I, I'm not having a problem with these people per se. So what am I supposed to do about these regulations that are on the book if they are not disturbing your province, which I'm now administering for you? Well, tough old Trajan does something which seems a little out of character because he's a magnificent warrior and he shows no mercy and he's expanded this empire. He's slaughtered everybody who's gotten in his way. He thinks it over and he writes back a letter. And this letter is very famous and it's called Trajan's Rescript. Now, most of us are not familiar with the term Rescript. Rescript simply means This is what somebody writes in answer in response to a letter. So Pliny sends the letter asking for clarification. Trajan sends the rescript, the answer. And it's a very interesting answer. And it is welcomed by the Christians. He says, number one, ask about their present beliefs. Don't ask about what they did in the past. Well, that eliminates the second and third issues for the existing law. Um, He also says, I don't want any official investigations. Don't go looking for these people. Number three, no anonymous accusations. Can you say Salem witch trial? And Trajan will have none of it. He said no. And finally, the force of this rescript will last until we get to a later emperor by the name of Valerian, who is a real piece of work. But what it does is it allows the Christians to basically stay within themselves, not make any trouble. You don't have to worry about the legionaries knocking on the door in the middle of the night. You don't have to worry about somebody who's your rival in business making an accusation against you uh, and getting hauled before the magistrates because of your religion. So it provides stability for a considerable period of time within the empire. So from the Christian's point of view, Trajan is very, very understanding. Trajan's a military man. He wants results. He's got enough problems. Don't go looking for more problems. Basically what he wants, keep the cash flowing. He is succeeded by another famous emperor and that's Hadrian. Most of you know Hadrian because he built Hadrian's Wall that divided um, modern-day Scotland from England and Wales. Hadrian uh, is a very fascinating man. He uh, spends almost no time in Rome. Uh, And he spends his time wandering, not wandering, methodically going to every part of the empire to see what's happening. This, again, a model for English and French kings. English and French kings in the early Middle Ages didn't stay in one castle. They got up and they walked. They went all around and they barged in on the various local dukes and counts uh, for a, a three or four month stay while they kind of saw how things were working in that part of the countryside. Well, Hadrian's very much like that. Hadrian uh, was an adopted son of Trajan's, and he goes his adoptive father one better. He says, the burden of proof is on the accuser. Where do we get our concept of innocent until proven guilty? You can thank Hadrian. So between Trajan and Hadrian, all of a sudden the relationship between Christianity and at least the legal structure of the empire is becoming a little bit more favorable. Uh, And times are reasonably good now for Christians. But nothing lasts forever. So if we move along. There's another rescript in the works from a later emperor by the name of Antonius Pius. And this is 157, so it's about a generation after Hadrian. Um, and um, by this time, the number of new sects and religions that are pouring into the empire from Egypt, uh, from the East, even from some of the Germanic and Central Asian tribes, which are being pushed west by more aggressive tribes, are pouring in, um, kind of like our southern border. Well, Antonius Pius sees that things are becoming very, very difficult to manage. Cohesion is breaking down in the empire. It's not becoming a melting pot. It's becoming a mosaic. Does that sound familiar? So he, he issues a remarkable uh, law, decree, and he bans any new religions. Not just Christianity, There are, we know new religions until he's had a chance to vet things and sort things out. Now, you can tell at this point, the power of the emperor is beginning to go to their heads. Remember that the first emperor, Augustus Caesar, was at pains to see to it that he at least had the appearance of being first among equals. And we talked about that concept as A philosophy of the relationship between the emperor and the other power centers, we call that the principate. He's the prince, but he's not a god. Well, the penalties, you can see there, they're not light. For the upper classes, if they are found to be in violation of this ban on new religions, they lose their property and they get deported. For the humiliores, which would be most of us in the audience, uh, it's not worth deporting you, we'll just kill you. And so one of the people who is martyred is a very famous Saint Polycarp. And we'll get back to Polycarp, he's a a bishop in uh, Smyrna which is where all the figs come from in Turkey. Um, Now we go back to some good emperors. Now you can see, we're we're making progress in terms of the ability for Christians to find a niche, a stable niche, but there's very little continuity from one emperor to the next. Um, We all know Marcus Aurelius Another great emperor, famous Stoic philosopher. Uh, His meditations are still read. They've never been out of print, so to speak. Uh, His son, uh, Commodus, has gotten kind of a bad rap from the movie Gladiator, which spans the tail end of Marcus Aurelius's career uh, into the portions of Commodus' uh, career. They're under tremendous pressure militarily and economically. And the fact that the empire has shrunk compared to Trajan is due to the fact that the peripheral areas are just too difficult to maintain. The army, as far as armies go, it may be the best in the world, but it's not the biggest in the world, and it's expensive. So Hadrian begins to start, like for example, his wall. Is it worth conquering Northern Scotland? What are you gonna get out of it? You're not gonna get anything out of it. There's nothing up there. So Hadrian starts, that's why he goes around the empire and kind of gets an idea of, hey, where can we trim? Um, think of him as the bean counter that comes into a business after there's been rapid expansion, gobbling up all kinds, like Pac-Man, gobbling up all kinds of companies, like MUSC 10 or 15 years ago. I mean, they, they just built one building, one thing after another, and then um, Governor Edwards, had done his thing and it was wonderful. And then, uh, I can't remember the name of the fellow, uh, Greenberg, came in and he was the ax man. He came in and said, look, you know, this, we've got to prune this back, it's not very efficient. So Marcus Aurelius and Commodus are trying to fight uh, off threats. And they are not just threats from invasions there are other terrible things that are beginning to happen. And one of the things that's starting to sweep through the empire with great regularity is the plague. Why? Well, the plague, as a doctor, I will tell you, the plague originates in Central Asia, on the steppes, there. Well, who's coming east? Those people are coming east, and they're transmitting it And as people pour into the border, they are bringing, among other things, the plague with them. So this is ravaging the empire. It's bad for business, it is bad for cohesion, it is catastrophic as far as revenue and manpower. So most of the pressure is coming in two directions. One is coming through Germany. And by this time, the Romans have basically said, all right, the Danube is where we're gonna stop. And further north, it's, it's gonna be the Rhine. We've tried going across, we just can't. You know, there's an old saying, uh, you can take the Germans out of the forest, but you can't take the forest out of the Germans, okay? And this is true. And they finally decide, okay, you know, it's not worth it. But the Germans are under pressure. They're under the pressure from the people who are even worse that are coming from the east. The other place that there's an enormous amount of, of difficulty is with the Persians, yet again. They have revived their empire, and they are starting to push, and their ambition is to run the Romans right out of modern-day Turkey, um, Holy Land, etc. They wanna just push them back to the shoreline of the Mediterranean. Um, so there's a lot of fear, a lot of economic anxiety, and again, it must mean that we are angering the gods. You know, two generations ago, we, there was nothing standing in our way. We, well, who are you going to turn on? So the persecutions start to rev up particularly, not in the West, but in the East. Uh, And one of the things that is coming back and being leveled at the Christians is that not only are they not worshiping the gods, but they're not contributing to social structure. They keep setting themselves apart, apart, apart. And the ship is sinking And everybody wants somebody to start bailing and pulling an oar. And the Christians are not doing that. And they're coming under tremendous attack intellectually for this. The other problem they're having is there's a sect that grows up at this time in what would be the area around Serbia now called Montanism and it's named after a priest or a monk named Montanus, who is accompanied by two uh, prophesying women by the name of Priscilla and Maximilla. Do you remember the passage in Paul, where Paul goes to, is it Ephesus? and there is somebody who has the girl that can prophesy and they're making money from it, and finally Paul says enough, and she loses her ability to prophesy. Well, prophecy is, is, is very important in the Roman Empire. So uh, what about the Mountainous? Well, number one, they're virulently against the Roman state. Number two, they're incredibly apocalyptic. They believe that Jesus is about to appear now. Um, They will not serve in the military. Uh, They will not hold public office. So even if you're an aristocrat, you're expected. You don't refuse public, they will not. Well, now the Christians are being conflated with the Montanists who really appear to be the enemy within. They are a fifth column as far as the Romans are concerned. And the fact that they're preaching the end of the world when everything is happening in the Roman Empire is not good for morale at all. So the persecution begins uh, and um, the Montanists and the Christians suffer alike because they are confused There's, people are not discriminating between the Christians and the Montanists. Now, the Montanist heresy will die out in about 100, 150 years. Its most famous convert is the great Christian intellectual Tertullian, one of the fathers of the church, who gets caught up in this. Now, a word about where we should go now. This is probably a good place to take questions. Uh, I've been trying to push this along a little bit. I hope it has gone a little bit more rapidly. Um, I will not be here next week. I will be here the week after I have a trip that I have to take out to the Wild West to Montana. But uh, if there are questions now, let's take a few minutes and just let me help you uh, with that if I can. Well, if you look at the following page, page eight, we're going to see another oscillation from the persecution. And then we're going to next time also get into the great crisis of the Roman Empire in the West which is called the crisis of the third century, uh, where in the space of about 50, 55 years, there'll be something like 26 different emperors. And we're touching on the beginnings of this. Commodus and Marcus Aurelius managed to kind of put the finger in the dike, but they can't solve the problems because many of the problems are being generated beyond the boundaries of the empire. Questions. The department that the Jewish people have serving in our services, was two questions. Was it unusual for various groups in these departments Now, if you were going to make your way in the world outside of the realm of business and trading, which had no social prestige at all, if you had ambitions to rise in Roman society, you had to have a military career. Um, And the officer corps was by and large drawn from the aristocracy. Again, sound familiar? right through the Middle Ages, 17th, 18th century, the officer corps came from the aristocracy. Now, the aristocracy was divided into a high aristocracy, and then a level just below called the equites, and they formed the cavalry. So they'd be the lower aristocracy, but as opposed to um, you know, people that went on to joust for consulships and things like that. So there was never a problem with getting people, uh, at least not at this stage, with getting people to join the military. That becomes a problem later on. The reason, uh, and as far as I know, the only group that had that dispensation, as I said, with the Jews. Now remember this. We've skipped over right at uh, another problem. We've talked about some of the problems that are besetting Marcus Aurelius and so on. The Jews, after being leveled in 70 AD, there's going to be another insurrection that occurs at about 135 to 137, roughly around this time, where the Romans suffer a couple of catastrophic military defeats at the hands of the Jews. Now, the Romans can lose battles but they never lose wars. But they're humiliated. And um, they eventually go back in, slaughter everybody, and run every Jew out of the Holy Land. Gone. That's why they got the dispensation, because they've been such a nuisance. It was easier to pacify them this way than it was to end, wind up with endless guerrilla warfare and insurrections. That's why Pilate was such a nervous Nelly. Even during his time, he had problems. I Remember, Jesus tells us about, uh, or answers a question about, well, what about those people who were assassinated by Pilate's troops while they were offering uh, sacrifices? And Jesus says, well, You know, what makes you think they're any worse than any of us? Um, There was the issue of Pilate wanting to build an aqueduct. Wonderful idea. Jerusalem's always had a little bit of a problem with water supply. So Pilate says, well, where's the biggest money-making machine in the Eastern Empire? Well, it's the temple. So he thinks, well, I'm not building this for me. I'm gonna build this for you guys. Well, that prompts an insurrection. Um, there's a time he wants to march in and set up shop in Jerusalem for one of the annual festivals where he comes down to try to keep a lid on things. And it's his first trip into Jerusalem, and he comes marching in with all the eagles, and he wants to take uh, some of the the symbols of the various legions and put them on the walls inside Jerusalem, and the people go crazy. So, um, yeah, they were very, very difficult to handle, and the Romans, again, were always practical. They didn't care about religion, except insofar as it supported the state. Uh, we'll even get to one of the Roman emperors here who take, has Christ as one of his household gods. But that's coming a little bit later. So right now, if, you, if this is a pressure cooker, the pressure is climbing. The Roman Empire is under a lot of stress, and it's only gonna get worse. And as it gets worse, what always happens? People look for scapegoats. It wasn't just Nero. Hitler looked for scapegoats. Mao looked for scapegoats. Stalin looked for scapegoats. It's the way people are, unfortunately.